0: So we have two readings tonight, Uh, the first comes to us from Luke chapter 24 and the second from 1 Peter chapter 1. So first of all Luke 24 beginning at verse 25. Now we're jumping into the story of Jesus uh, as he appears after his resurrection to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, we're picking it up at verse 25, where it says, He, that is Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Amen. And then we also turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and we're just reading the verses 10 to 12. So 1 Peter 1 from verse 10, Peter writes this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances So, my friends, the, uh, the time has, uh, has come in this Living Theology series for us to turn our attention to the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, if you were here, you'll know that Reuben wrapped up our section on sin, or in other words, the problem, and now we're moving on to Jesus, the solution. And so, obviously, that means that we're going to look at the New Testament, doesn't it? Well, that's actually A good question. I mean many claim that the Old Testament is irrelevant to our understanding of Christ and his gospel. They say this first part of our Bible speaks to us about a different God with a different character and a different way of salvation. They say that it's all about an angry God who only saves those who earn it by keeping his laws. Whereas the New Testament is about a loving God who saves by grace and by the cross. And so they say that Jesus is clearly connected to the New Testament, but not to the Old. Just this last week, I read a quote from US Pastor Andy Stanley, who said this, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet, it does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. Another author summed up his message, saying that this man recently announced that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their understanding of the faith. So I wonder, what do you think about that? Does the birth of Jesus represent a radically different, more loving phase in God's plan? Can the first 75% of God's word be ignored or simply are uh, used for interesting stories and moral teachings? Or does the message of Christ actually begin long before his birth? In other words, is Jesus in the Old Testament Well, this afternoon, my friends, we want to see that Jesus is indeed found in the first part of our Bibles. But much more than that, what we want to see this afternoon is that the Old Testament is in fact filled to the brim with the message of Christ and that its entire purpose is to prepare us for that moment when he was born into this world. After all, didn't we read just a moment ago in 1 Peter that the prophets, that is the Old Testament prophets, searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And in Luke chapter 24... Didn't it say there that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. And remember, that's the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, concerning himself. My friends, this afternoon, we want to see that the Old Testament, in fact, is all about Jesus. And we'll discover this as we consider three things. First, how he is present, second, how he is promised, and third, how he is patterned. So we start with the way that Jesus is present in the Old Testament. And I'd like to begin by asking you a question. Where do you think that Jesus is mentioned for the very first time in the Bible? Well, from what I've already said, you know that it's earlier than Matthew chapter 1. But is it in Isaiah? Is it in the Psalms? Well, my friends, the very first place that Jesus is mentioned is actually in Genesis 1, verse 1. For there it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does that refer to Jesus, you ask? Well, think of Genesis 1, verse 26, only a few verses later. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Already there, we're told that God is plural in his very being. And so at the point of creation, we're not being told about God the Father in isolation, but we are being told of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But is that really right? Am I I actually reading too much into this? Well, think about John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You see, my friends, there's actually two mistakes that we as Christians can make. The first is when we forget that Jesus' birth was not the beginning of his existence. Unlike every other baby that is born, he was not a new creation, but rather an incarnation as the pre-existing Christ humbled himself and took on our human flesh. That's why in John 8... Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. The second mistake is when we forget that the God of the Old Testament, the Lord Yahweh, is in fact the triune God. So wherever we read of him, we are also reading of Jesus. As he himself reminds us in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And so he was most certainly present at creation in Genesis 1 verse 1. But he's also present throughout the entire Old Testament. For Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the divine and eternal Son of God. However, there may also be times when we see his presence even more specifically For there are those who believe that whenever God or a representative of God appeared to his people in human form, that this was in fact the pre-incarnate Christ, sometimes referred to as a Christophany. For example, people speak of that mysterious priest Melchizedek in Genesis 14 the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16, the appearance of the Lord in Genesis 18, the man who wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. We can also think of the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5 and the fourth man in the furnace in Daniel chapter 3. Now I think we need to be careful not to make too much of these appearances especially as they are not confirmed in the New Testament as being Jesus. However, I think we need to acknowledge the possibility. There is no reason why he could not appear to his people in this way. But even if that is not the case, we still know for certain that Jesus, the Son of God, is present throughout the Old Testament. But having seen this, we should now also think about how he was promised. And by this we mean that gro- that growing messianic promise that one day the eternal son would come to us in human form. The promises about the person he would be, the life he would live, the salvation he would achieve. And again, we go back to Genesis For as we've seen previously, the Lord created a perfect world and humanity corrupted it with their sin. For we fell for the devil's lies. We cut ourselves off from our maker and we made ourselves worthy of his judgment. But my friends, even at that moment, in passing sentence, the Lord provided hope, the beginning of the promise. For in Genesis 3, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Already here, God promises that one day a descendant of Adam and Eve would come who would destroy Satan and sin and the curse. But in that process, he himself would be struck. His rescue plan would come at personal cost. As we dig further, this promise expands. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And in chapter 15, he promised that by faith, Abraham would be made righteous and that he would expand in his offspring and his territory. And in chapter 17, he pledged to Abraham and his descendants that somehow the sin problem would be overcome for he promised that he would be their God and they would be his people. But yet at the very same time, the covenant of circumcision reminded them that this redemption would come at the cost of blood. Over time, the promise of the Messiah became ever clearer. Many years later, the Lord spoke to King David and told him that the Saviour would come not only from the line of Adam, not only from the line of Abraham, but also from his own kingly line. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he promised, he promised David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. And then over time, more and more details were revealed. Think of Psalm 16, which speaks already of of Jesus' resurrection. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And what about Psalm 22 that speaks so clearly of Jesus' sufferings? Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verses 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verses 16 to 18 Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots. For my garment later on we told more about his birth in Isaiah chapter 7 therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel and also in Isaiah chapter 9 for to us a child is born to us a son is given And my friends, who, who can forget Isaiah 53, where we're told so clearly about Jesus' work of atonement. You know, we could read the whole chapter of it, but listen just to these verses. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers are silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Oh friends, what an amazing passage about the one who would give his life for us Ezekiel chapter 34 speaks also of his loving pastoral heart. The Lord says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. And he will tend them and be their shepherd. And then there's even more specific Details like geographical details in Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And then there's Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And my friends, these are just a few examples. The Old Testament is jam-packed full of God's incredible promises about his Messiah who would come, his birth, his life, his nature, his task, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It's all there. It truly is all about Jesus. But thirdly, having seen how in the Old Testament Jesus is present and he is promised, we also need to see how he is patent. And what I mean by this is that even in passages that don't speak of him directly, there are so many ways in which they help us to understand who he would be and what he would do. And again, we can only touch on a few examples. Going back one more time, we can think of Genesis chapter 2 and the story of Abraham. Do you remember it? How he was called to offer up Isaac on that altar. It teaches us the importance of sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice of a precious only son and the mercy of God who himself would provide. There's also that whole narrative of Joseph and its glorious climax in Genesis 50 as he declares to his wicked brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. What an amazing pointer to how Jesus would save us, would save many lives. We can go across to Exodus chapter 12, where we read of the Passover and how God's people were spared from that that deadly plague on the firstborn, not because of their own righteousness, but because they were covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. And soon after that, there's the Lord's gracious and miraculous deliverance of his people in chapter 14 as they crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground while their Egyptian enemies were destroyed. And again, these stories, they're pictures for us of what Jesus was coming to do. My friends, we can think of large sections of the Old Testament such as all those rules surrounding the entire sacrificial system which teach us that sin will never be paid for by keeping the law, but that atonement is needed, that blood must be shed, that an enormous price needs to be paid. Or we can think of very short sections like Numbers chapter 21, where the bronze serpent was raised up so that all who were bitten by snakes could look to it and live. And do you remember what Jesus said about that event in John chapter 3? Just before the best known verse in the Bible, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. We can think of the book of Joshua as God used him to lead his people into the promised land, that glorious image of what lies ahead for us. We can think of the book of Judges as God revealed the chaos of having no godly king to follow. We can think of the book of Ruth and the joy of finding that guardian redeemer. My friends, we can think of all those books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles Showing us examples of good kings and bad kings, all helping us to know what to look for in the ultimate king. We can think of specific stories like the one Jed looked at last Sunday about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. What a great pointer that passage is to the undeserved and totally free grace of our God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And all these patterns are only reinforced and built upon throughout every single part of the Old Testament. If only we would have the eyes and the heart to see them. Friends, there are just so many ways that it prepares prepares us for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so my friends, we have seen this afternoon that despite what some people may say, Jesus is not absent from the first three quarters of our Bible. In fact, the Old Testament is all about the Saviour, the Saviour who is coming. But as we conclude, I want us to reflect just on why this is so important. You see, it's important because it shows us that the entire Word of God is one magnificent unity. Unity. From Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through to Revelation 22 verse 21, the Bible contains the message of one gracious God who never changes and the message of one amazing plan of reconciliation that never deviates and the message of one desperately needed Messiah who was and who is and who always will be only way to be saved and my friends it's important because without the Old Testament or to be more precise without a proper Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament we will never understand the New Testament and we'll never truly understand Jesus and we'll never truly understand the Gospel. Don't listen to those who say that the Old Testament is about a different God who's full of legalistic wrath and expects people to earn their way into his good books. No, my friends, the Old Testament is about a God of love who, despite the gross rebellion of humanity, set in motion a plan to save us from the very start. It's about a compassionate father who promises to send his own precious son into this world to ultimately suffer and die so that we might live. It's about our Lord and his incredible grace. And so on every single page, we see Jesus present. We see Jesus promised. And we see Jesus patent. You know, the, the New Testament authors understood this. I mean, why do you think it is that Matthew begins his gospel account with a genealogy of the Messiah that goes all the way back to Abraham? Why do you think it is that Mark opens his message with quotes from Malachi and from Isaiah? Why do you think it is that Luke, after telling a story of Jesus' birth to his Gentile readers, then takes them to another genealogy that goes all the way back, not just to Abraham, but all the way to Adam. And my friends, why do you think it is that John opens with those well-known words that we have looked at, linking Jesus back to the creation? My friends, if we truly want to know about the person of Jesus Christ, then we absolutely must start at the beginning. For as we do, we will increasingly feel the depth and the gravity of our sin And we will increasingly grasp the absolute wonder and unity of God's overarching plan. And we will increasingly love and trust and glorify our God. Let us never neglect the Old Testament, but let us relish it, rejoice in it, and above all, read it. For as we do, then Jesus by his Spirit, will also open our minds and our hearts to understand what is said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. Amen. Let's pray.